This is All Kinds of Balls, episode 6 with me, Sam Bartram. And what a week it's been this week. Absolutely incredible Brazilian Grand Prix, a masterclass from Lewis Hamilton. We're going to be looking at that in some detail. Also this week, we're going to be talking about the T20 World Cup semi-finals and final. Congratulations, Australia. Now that's hard to say, but there we go. Well done, Australia and commiserations, England. Uh, We're also going to be looking at uh, the new managers in the Premier League. Steven Gerrard, Dean Smith and Eddie Howe, English managers. How are they going to fare? Um, Also an international football roundup, particularly looking at England's latest performances and a shock in the Portugal-Serbia game. And this week's sporting icon is the England legend, the wonderful, the magnificent cricketer, Ben Stokes. What a superstar. We'll be looking at the life and times of Stokes. So come and join me. All kinds of balls. Let's do this. Well, this week on All Kinds of Balls, we start in the only possible place that we could have started, which is a roundup of the fabulous Brazilian Grand Prix, phenomenal race, wonderful race weekend and a sensational drive to victory for Lewis Hamilton. Um, To be honest, we could do the whole podcast on just this race alone. Um, There's that much to talk about, but I'll do my best to summarise the goings on, some of my views on it and uh, the repercussions from here on in. So anyway, um, the race weekend started badly for Lewis Hamilton when it became clear that he'd have to take a five-place penalty uh, for yet another power unit um, and would therefore, although that wouldn't affect the sprint race, that would affect uh, his starting position for the main race on the Sunday. Um, So again, unfortunately, it looked for Hamilton as though it was another weekend of damage limitation when really, if he's to have a reasonable chance of winning the title he needed to be starting to catch up with uh, Max Verstappen uh, win some races and make inroads in the deficit anyway we got around to qualifying and it transpired that actually the Mercedes had some real strong pace particularly in the hands of Lewis Hamilton Uh, he was sensationally quick he was almost half a second quicker than Max Verstappen, who was in second. So Hamilton qualified first for the sprint race, ahead of Verstappen and Bottas in second and third. Now, this is where the weekend took a controversial turn. Um, So it emerged uh, not long after qualifying that Lewis was under investigation by the stewards for an infringement uh, relating to his rear wing. Um, It also came out Um, probably an hour or so later, that Max Verstappen was also under investigation for allegedly uh, tampering with Lewis's rear wing. Uh, A video emerged on social media put on by a fan uh, which showed Max Verstappen walking up to Lewis's car and having a little bit bit of a play with his rear wing, having a look at it and wandering away. Um, So there was those two investigations which rumbled on overnight you know, it took an incredible amount of time. The stewards said they were awaiting further information uh, that would only come to the fore um, the day after. And therefore, it was coming up to the sprint race and we still didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, there was some talk of uh, Lewis Hamilton being disqualified, but that wasn't confirmed. 
anyway, eventually, uh, within sort of a couple of hours of the start of the sprint race, um, there was first of all the news that Max Verstappen was given a whopping €50,000 fine for tampering with Lewis's car. Uh, I say tampering, I mean, there's not a lot he could have done, really. Um, but nonetheless, he shouldn't be touching other, his rival's car. Um, so that was a kind of slam dunk fine. But probably a fair decision. I don't think it needed any more than that. Um, the news then emerged that Hamilton had been disqualified from qualifying and demoted to last in the sprint race um, due to the infringement, which turned out was um, his, the gap in his DRS. So when the DRS on the uh, back of his wing opened, um, the gap on one side was two millimetres, believe it or not, too large. Um the stewards accepted that this was accidental. This wasn't by design. This is something that had gone wrong or happened um, during the course of qualifying. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, it was against the rules. It was too big a gap. It could have um, improved Hamilton's pace and he was demoted to the back of the grid. Um, I mean, for me, a two millimetre gap on one side, is that going to make any difference whatsoever? Seems a ridiculously harsh punishment, if you ask me, for such a small infringement. But the rules are the rules. Obviously, they're there for a reason. And that's what the FIA and the stewards went with. Uh, Mercedes, as you can understand, were very displeased with this, very unhappy and actually felt that, you know, this was going against some of the actions that uh, the stewards had imposed on um, Red Bull in the previous few weekends where they had been allowed to change damaged wings in park Ferme conditions. And um, essentially, they, they said they, uh, Mercedes view was that this is double standards. Uh, Red Bull are allowed to get away with things like this. And when it comes to Mercedes, they get the harshest punishment po possibly. So going into the sprint race, obviously, Hamilton absolutely gutted, looking like a car that could cruise to victory um, with the pace that it seemed to have in, in hand um, and actually having to start the sprint race, which would obviously determine the qualifying positions for the, the race on Sunday at the back of the grid. Um, so anyway, fast forward to the sprint race. Max Verstappen um, lost the lead to Bottas at the start, who uh, retained that for the rest of the, rest of the race and uh, guaranteed the pole position for Sunday. Good drive from Bottas, really strong start. Um, they decided to go on the um, on the soft tyres, which was a bit of a gamble uh, on Bottas's car, whereas uh, Verstappen and Perez both went on the mediums. Um, but it did the job off the line, and actually Bottas was able to hold on quite comfortably in the end uh, for that first place in the sprint race. So he got the three points for first, Verstappen got the two points for second, and a uh, fantastic uh, performance from Carlos Sainz to hold off Sergio Perez for the single point for coming third. Um, so that would be how they would line up um, on the Sunday. However, the massive talking point was Lewis Hamilton's drive in that sprint race. Um, he started obviously 20th. He'd made up four places already by the first corner. Um, absolutely whizzed past the, the two Williams and the two Haas cars. Um, and just proceeded to pick off the rest of the field on that big, long uh, main straight in Brazil with kind of unerring accuracy, really. Every, every, every lap was another car dispatched um, like clockwork, eventually finishing fifth, an incredible fifth, meaning that um, added to the five-place grid penalty that he knew he was having for the new power unit, he would start 10th. 
I mean, a lot of pundits were saying he might make it up to 10th, 11th in the sprint race if he does really well, start 16th, none of the sort. 10th place was far beyond uh, Mercedes and Hamilton's expectations and it would make for an interesting race, you would have thought. Well, on the race day, and this is the biggie, um, so let's go to, Let's go right from the start. Verstappen and Perez... Um, both had really good starts. They overtook Bottas and the Red Bull were in control of the race, running one and two. Um, Hamilton made a brilliant start as well. He made three places again by the first corner. Um, fantastic start. Helped a little bit by um, the problems for Lando Norris, who got um, got a puncture. Um, so was able to overtake uh, Norris and two other cars on that first, first corner. And... Um, just as in the sprint race the day before, was able to pick off the rest of the field, no problem at all. And within a few laps, already up from 10th to 3rd after um, his teammate Valtteri Bottas uh, let him let him pass, essentially, um, and was chasing down Perez. Then came a safety car, bunched the pack up, although Hamilton didn't get a brilliant start after the safety car period. Uh, the two Red Bulls uh, were off again, but uh, within a few laps, Hamilton was able to pick off Sergio Perez and um, he then made the decision to stop early, uh, which Verstappen covered the next lap. But it brought Hamilton a couple of seconds closer to Verstappen. And from that moment on, Hamilton was on Verstappen's tail. He didn't quite get close enough to, to overtake, but he was he was sort of within the two second mark for quite a long period of time. Um Verstappen then uh, made the kind of opposite decision, which was to um, stop first in the second round of pit stops. So he covered off the undercut. Uh, Hamilton stopped, well, um, the, the, a couple of laps after. I think it was three laps after. Um, so he, he would obviously have the stronger tyres towards the end of the race. And Hamilton proceeded to catch up quite quickly to the back of Verstappen and Thereafter was a ding-dong battle for many laps with Verstappen just about managing to keep ahead of Hamilton. Mercedes had the uh, the quicker car in the first and the third sector of the lap, uh, but the Red Bull was quicker in the second, more windy sector, and Hamilton just wasn't quite getting close enough uh, to have a go at the overtake. Um, then Hamilton had a really good run out of um, the fourth corner and was um, closing in to uh, Verstappen, had a go on the outside and Verstappen forced Hamilton off the track to stay ahead. And I say forced him off because um, Hamilton was forced to leave the track. Verstappen himself actually left the track. You know, both cars were well off the track. If Hamilton hadn't pulled over, it would have been a collision yet again. Um, and uh, this was not deemed worthy of investigation by the stewards, unbelievably. Um, I mean, I was sitting there watching the screen, screaming, this is a penalty if I've ever seen one. Slam dunk five second penalty for Verstappen. Absolutely shocked by this decision. And I think Mercedes kind of thought, well, this this is a joke, really. I mean, a lot of purists, a lot of F1 fans uh, will, will often say, let them race. Which I think, great, yeah, let them race, absolutely. Let them race, but let them race fairly. That was not a fair move by Verstappen. Anyhow, it did allow him to stay ahead. Um, he then proceeded uh, a few laps later to kind of weave quite dramatically over the track, which is something that earned him a black and white flag, which is obviously a sort of formal official warning. Um, Hamilton sat back for a few laps um, 
let his tires um, get get back to speed, um, gave gave them a bit of time off, and then pulled back to Verstappen, and this time, this time made the overtake stick uh, to raucous applause from the Brazilian crowd. Um, absolutely, um, 100% behind Hamilton this weekend, the the Brazilian crowd, and uh, yeah, they went crazy with that. Following that, Hamilton sauntered to what can only be described an incredible win from 10th place on the grid, 20th before the start of the sprint race. An unbelievable performance from Hamilton. Uh, could anyone else on the grid have pulled it off? I think the only other person on the grid who might have been able to pull off something similar is probably Verstappen himself. Um, looking back uh, in history, I think, yeah, Ayrton Senna maybe, someone of that ilk might have been able to pull it off, but th there are very, very few drivers that could do what Lewis Hamilton has done this weekend. Um, in the process, he's closed the gap to just 14 points. Uh, at one stage, it looked like it might be might be 28 points with Hamilton leading and uh, with Hamilton second and, uh, and Verstappen leading. And that obviously puts the championship race completely out of Hamilton's hands. But it remains in his hands. Hamilton wins the uh, next three races. He is the world champion. Um, just 14 points in it. Mercedes were incredibly quick in Brazil, which was kind of thought to possibly be a track that favoured the Red Bull. Um, so it'll be interesting going into these uh, three final races in the Far East um, that look like they might be favourable to Mercedes. We don't know, but um, it's it's clear that actually, you know, this this championship fight is going right down to the wire, whatever happens now. Um, also, it's clear that the gloves are absolutely off between Red Bull and Mercedes. Uh, Mercedes are still feeling incredibly aggrieved and hard done by by the penalty that Hamilton got they thought it was grossly unfair and that if, if it had been Red Bull in that position they would have been treated differently um, Red Bull well it seems they're now prepared to play as dirty as is re required to stay ahead in the title fight um, obviously they're looking for any little minutiae where they can uh, report Mercedes to, to the stewards and to the FIA looking to gain every little tiny tiny advantage it seems um, in terms of Verstappen, you know, he's clearly was prepared to drive right to the edge and, and, and possibly a couple of times beyond it to stay ahead. Um, he's not going to give an inch. It's going to be fascinating going into the final three races. But after Mexico last week and looking like it's Red Bull's title to lose, it's now all in the balance again. And I cannot wait for the next race in Qatar. Bring it on. What a win. Lewis Hamilton, take a bow. This week saw the latter stages of the T20 World Cup final. Uh, the two semi-finals bringing England together with New Zealand and Australia with Pakistan. Four of the very best T20 sides in the world uh, brought together on the biggest stage and uh, fireworks would ensue. Um, so let's take it back to England's semi-final with New Zealand. Oh, it was agony. It was agony watching that as an England fan. Um, absolutely devastated they lost. Um, so, obviously, a decent batting performance from England, set, setting a reasonable target. Uh, Moe Nally uh, with an undefe undefeated, superb uh, 51 not out, uh, further underlining what a brilliant T20 player he is, uh, both with bat and ball. Um, but really, England threw it away from a winning position. They had bowled well to a point, um, and after Liam Livingston bowled the 16th over, it looked incredibly good. Liam Livingston had the bowling performance of his life, 
to take two for 22, kept, kept it incredibly tight and um, it was England's to lose at that point. But unfortunately, um, a really, really poor over, uh, uncharacteristically poor over from Chris Jordan, um, combined with Wood, Moeen and Wokes not really being on song, um, we got battered around the park. To be fair, they went for they went for plenty. Um, Daryl Mitchell was on fire. Had the played the innings of his life. Finished on seventy two not out of forty seven balls. But it was really uh, Jimmy Neesham when he came in that did the damage. He hits twenty seven off eleven sixes flying here, there, and everywhere. And ultimately, it was New Zealand that came out the victors. Um, for me. I still think that England are the best T20 side in world cricket. On the day, you know, anyone can beat anyone in T20 cricket. That Well, certainly out of the very best teams, that that can happen. Um, as England found in the last T20 World Cup final, when really they, they should have won that one. Um, but for Ben Stokes getting uh, battered around by Carlos Brathwaite in the last over. Um, and again, they've fallen just short. I think it's worth remembering that um, England were missing Ben Stokes, uh, Joffre Archer and Jason Roy, who got injured in the semi-final, they would all have been in the team. Potentially Tamal Mills, who had bowled pretty well over the last year, uh, he could have been in there. Um, I mean, they're big players to miss, particularly in T20. The explosive power of Jason Roy at the top of the innings and uh, Ben Stokes coming in uh, as well. You know, that would have been massive for England and can't underestimate what a big loss that was. Um but New Zealand are just so strong in all formats and they battle hard and, um, that you know, they're a great, great side, New Zealand. So uh, by no means a disgrace for England to lose to that New Zealand side, but disappointing nonetheless. Um, then the other semi-final, um, Australia beat Pakistan. Um, that was a, a, a sort of strange game. Pakistan um, batted well um, and set, set a decent target. And they were well on top as well. Um, you know, they'd, they'd got the key Australian wickets. Um, and it, uh, I think they were five down Australia uh, when uh, Wade and Stoinis came to the crease and they they did the job and, and, and pulled it around. Particularly Wade, I think he made 41 from 17 balls and um, put Australia in the final for an uh, all Antipodean final against New Zealand. New Zealand in the uh, so Australia New Zealand final um and yeah well we know the result now Australia won um New Zealand in the end were just far too slow to get started uh they were 54 for two I think off the first 10 overs which you, you can't score at five and over um in in T20 cricket they were just asking to be beaten and they didn't bowl to their usual standards. Uh, Ish Sodi, who's normally reliable in the T20 format, uh, he went for plenty. Um, the the usual suspects, Trent Bolt, wasn't up to his normal standards, um, and it just it was just a bit of a unusual display from New Zealand um, with bat and ball. They missed Devon Conway, who's been a revelation this past year. Uh, he obviously injured himself punching his bat after the after getting out in the semi final, which was absolutely ridiculous thing to do but he, he'll be regretting that um and you know for New Zealand Kane Williamson was absolutely sensational as he always is um you know he's the sort of player that any team would want in their side he's he's basically New Zealand's Joe Root is I think the best description of him 
Um, where's Joe Root from our T20 side, I hear you ask? Well, that's a, a debate for another day. Um, but yeah, Kane Williamson, spectacular innings, made 81, uh, gave New Zealand a real shot in the end. Um, but uh, the uh, performance of Mitchell Marsh and uh, David Warner uh, took Australia to victory. They sauntered really to victory in the end. They um, had lots of time to spare uh, and could, you know, they were able to hit singles in the end um, as they neared the target. Um, disappointed for New Zealand. They've come so close yet again as per 2019, losing another World Cup final. Uh, and you've got to ask, you know, how many more chances uh, are, are this particular New Zealand side going to get? Um, they're a strong team. I think they'll be there or thereabouts, you know, in future tournaments. But you're just kind of willing them to get over the line. You know, they're such a likeable team, uh, played the game in the right way, great sportsmen. And it would have been nice to see them win the final. Um, but we have to say, um, I mean, we have to say through gritted teeth, uh, you know, um, well done, Australia. Doesn't come easy to say that. Um, you know, we, we batted them in the group stages. Really, um, England... I mean, yes, I'm I'm partisan here. England are a better T20 side than Australia. Disappointing to see them come out on top after the ease with which we beat them. Um, but, you know, ultimately they've come good when they've needed to come good. Um, they do have a top side. They've got great players, particularly their bowling attack. The likes of uh, Hazelwood, uh, Cummins, Stark. I mean, that is that is a bowling attack that can challenge anyone on their day. Um, and with Warner at the top of the order, you've always got a chance. So congratulations, Australia. Um, I think we need to win the Ashes now, really, to make things right. What do you reckon? Only a few weeks to go until that. Looking forward to it, um, but not to be for England on this occasion. Football now and no club games this week. So it's an international focus for us. And we're going to take a look at how England got on, as well as a bit of a roundup from the World Cup qualifying games in Europe. Um, so first game on uh, Friday night for England, uh, they were up against Albania at Wembley. Um, a very comfortable 5-0 win against what could have been uh, awkward opponents. Albania, not a bad team these days, um, have caused uh, pretty good teams difficulties in the last few years. Um, England were absolutely sensational in the first half. It was 5-0 at half time. Second half was an absolute cruise. Uh, some really, really neat, quick passing uh, from England. Albania decided on a high press, which proved to be a uh, significant tactical error against this England team. Harry Kane scored the perfect hat-trick, as they say. Uh, right foot, left foot and uh, a header. Um, I have to say, Rhys James, really excellent as well in that first half, providing the attacking thrust from the right-hand side. Um, and uh, the game also notable for Emil Smith-Rowe making his England debut. So all in all, a really, really lovely, comfortable performance, sending England to the brink of qualification, um, needing only to beat San Marino, or in fact draw with San Marino in their final game to get through. Uh, well, they managed to beat San Marino. Um, just the 10-0. 10-0 in an international game. Uh, yeah, well, England have scored 10 before, but not for many, many years. Um, it was, yeah... A ruthless performance. Um, I've seen some pretty insipid England performances against the likes of the San Marinos and Andorras of this world in the past, uh, with just about squeezing through. Um, none of that on uh, Monday night. It was uh, absolutely ruthless from the start. 
Uh, Kane bagged four goals in the first half, two penalties, uh, a bit of a scuff into the corner and a, and a neat finish after jinking past the defender. Um, he's now level with Gary Lineker on 48 England goals, believe it or not, with his seven goals this week. All of a sudden, he's jumped up the uh, the rankings in the all-time England list and just five shy of Wayne Rooney's 53 goals uh, of the record. He will almost certainly get that in the next year or so. Um, again, a really, really strong first-half performance. Uh, England looked like they were going to score every couple of minutes in that first half. 6-0 uh, at half-time. 10-0 at the end, uh, also debuts for uh, Aaron Ramsdale in the in the goal and uh, Conor Gallagher, the young Chelsea, currently on loan at Crystal Palace player, uh, provide another highlight. Uh, first England goals for Emil Smith-Rowe, not long after his debut, he scores on his first start. And Tyrone Mings also with a first England goal. Excellent, thoroughly professional performance from England. Now, in the other uh, World Cup qualifiers, there were some major, major shocks. Portugal lost at home to Serbia, a last-minute Aleksandra Mitrovic goal, providing Serbia with their path through to the World Cup and Portugal into the playoffs. One of the big European big hitters, Portugal, um, and they might not make it through yet. We'll have to see who they draw in the playoffs and they'll be hoping for a favourable draw. Also, another massive, massive shock on Monday night. Italy failing to beat Northern Ireland. Fantastic display from Northern Ireland. They could have, they could actually have won. They had good chances to beat Italy, um, but wonderful performance. Um, and Italy needed to uh, match Switzerland's result. Switzerland uh, beat Bulgaria 4-0. Uh, Italy obviously drew. So Switzerland go to the World Cup. Italy, the European champions, into the playoffs. Um, again, another European big hitter hoping for a favourable playoff draw and those playoffs won't be easy um it's uh, there's none of the, none of your two leg business it's a one off semi final and a and then a one off final um so yeah we'll see who they draw but um interesting exciting times to come um possibility as well of another shock on tuesday night this podcast going out on monday um but uh, the netherlands play norway the winner of that game should make it through but Turkey could also spoil the party. Uh, they're just behind uh, Holland and Norway. So that could be uh, an interesting finale as well. Uh, I must also mention Scotland. Fantastic win in Moldova to guarantee their second place in the group and place in the playoffs. And then uh, Monday night, wonderful 2-0 win against Denmark. Denmark who have been uh, pretty irresistible of late. Uh, wonderful result for Scotland and that'll do them the uh, world of good going into the playoffs. They've been in good form recently, Scotland. Um, other teams to guarantee qualification already. Uh, Germany, England, Croatia, Denmark, as already mentioned, Belgium, France and Spain. So a number of the teams you'd expect to win their groups. Um, but yeah, big shocks regarding Portugal and Italy and they have it all to do still. <laughs> More football now, and uh, I thought it'd be a good opportunity to have a look at some of the recent managerial signings for the Premier League clubs. Been some uh, comings and goings in the managerial merry-go-round recently, and I thought a perfect opportunity to take stock and look at the newbies. So, Aston Villa have appointed Steven Gerrard as manager. Um, 
Now, obviously, Gerard comes with a glittering CV from his playing career. One of the great uh, England players, England captain, over 100 caps, brilliant career at Liverpool, won virtually everything apart from the league title, as uh, some would like to remind him, I'm sure. Um, but actually, stellar playing career and um, should also be noted, he's quite a formidable character, Steven Gerrard. Doesn't suffer fools, um, dominant kind of captain figure. I think by nature, quite a perhaps understated and shy individual. But when it comes to football, um, a kind of domineering character, I'm sure, in the dressing room. So um, he started off his uh, managerial career, obviously, at Rangers, uh, north of the border. Has had a brilliant time up there. Has won Rangers their first title in 10 years, obviously. In the intervening period, Rangers have been all the way down to the bottom of the Scottish pyramid. Um, but um, he's taken them into kind of um, in and around the top spots in the Scottish Premier League to uh, winning the league title by a long way last season. They were invincible. They won. Uh, they didn't lose a game in the league all season. Um, absolutely stunning record. And, and unsurprisingly, as a consequence, lots and lots of people have uh, become interested in what Gerard's got to offer. Um, and Aston Villa have been the first ones from the, prem the sort of big clubs uh, in the Premier League to um, to, to go and get him. Um, now, I think he'll be a great success, to be honest. I absolutely love Steven Gerrard as a character, as a player, and I think he's carried that on as a manager. Um, I think he'll be a great manager for Aston Villa. Uh, the one word of warning would be that Obviously, the Premier League is relentless uh, when you compare it to the Scottish Premier League. And um, yeah, you've got the occasional big game against Celtic and some, some reasonable teams up there. But you've also got the likes of your St Mirrens and your Ross Counties, you know, just, just to tick off, basically. Let's tick off another win. Um, certainly not the case in the Premier League. Every week is a new challenge. All the teams are of a similar standard. And um, you've got to be doing something different to, to the other teams to get that real advantage. Um, so I think it'll be a different sort of challenge for Steven Gerrard, but I'm excited to see what he can do. Um, moving on from uh, Steven Gerrard, uh, a new managerial appointment at Norwich City, Dean Smith. Um, basically being out of management for all of a week from being sacked as Aston Villa manager to being instated as Norwich City manager. Now, I have to say when I first heard the news that he was favourite for the post, I was a bit underwhelmed. Um, mainly because he clearly couldn't have been in the board's thoughts when they sacked Daniel Fark. Um, obviously, he was still in a job then. Um, so it did make you think, well, actually, did the board have a plan? Um, what what were they thinking? With with the appointment of Daniel Farker, it was, it was clear to see. Um, they'd, they'd sort of scouted around the... Um, the lower leagues, if you like, in, in Europe and um, tried to identify a manager who fitted the profile that they wanted. And Daniel Fark came in, in my opinion, did a really, really good job. Um, he's played some fantastic football in the championship. I've talked about it on the podcast before. Obviously, hasn't been able to take that into the Premier League for obvious reasons. A lot more challenging environment to be successful with that kind of attacking brand of football. Um, but Dean Smith... Familiar name, um, solid appointment, but is there anything to be excited about? Well, I went away and I thought a bit more about it. Um, and I, I sort of looked back at sort of Dean Smith's managerial career. Um, and actually, 
he's got a very good record at all the clubs he's been at, um, whether that be Walsall uh, at the start where he was kind of uh, given the title of the, the Brummy Mourinho for his uh, sort of um, achievements there. Then on to Brentford, uh, again, really, really successful there, um, you know, brought them towards the top of, of the championship. And then um, finally, Aston Villa, a uh, very popular figure there, took them back into the Premier League after they got relegated and had a few good seasons in the Premier League. Um, Aston Villa fans don't seem to have too many bad words to say about Dean Smith. So actually, you look at it on the face of it, not an exotic appointment necessarily, but that's not what Norwich City need right now. They need someone who can put a team together that's capable of staying in the Premier League. Can Dean Smith do that? Well, that remains to be seen. It's an awfully big job for him uh, with only one win all season for Norwich so far. But it'll be interesting to see how he does and how he gets on. Um, finally, in terms of the newbies, there's Eddie Howe, who's come in at Newcastle. Uh, obviously a manager who's highly thought of. He's been linked with a lot of sort of top jobs, um, most recently with the Celtic job in the summer, but obviously didn't get that one. Um, but Newcastle have taken a punt. And I think mainly on the basis of his really good achievements at Bournemouth, obviously taking them through the leagues and uh, having a, a long stint in the Premier League before they finally got relegated. Um, yeah, he comes with a great CV, Eddie Howe, but my fear for him is that as he comes as a stopgap until the board can get a world-class manager in the summer, obviously um, they've got a lot of money to throw about Newcastle, um, is the Eddie Howe appointment a let's hope he can save us from relegation and then we'll move on. Mm, I think there's a risk of it. Also, can a manager like Eddie Howe inspire these world-class stars, the likes of which Newcastle are clearly going to be trying to sign in uh, in January, which, by the way, is a massive transfer window for Newcastle. They're um, sort of level bottom of the Premier League at the moment. Um, they're a few points from safety. They've got work to do. Um, they've got to sign the right players in January. Eddie Howe's got to get them playing the right way um, and when they do go shopping in January can Eddie Howe inspire the likes of I know Benzema or Mbappe I'm not for a second suggesting Newcastle are going to get uh, those players but can he inspire the big stars to play for him I don't know that remains to be seen interesting appointment I wish him well I hope he does well I'm, I'm pleased that they've gone for a English manager with a, a really good kind of track record and CV as opposed to um, dabbling in a little known kind of foreign coach as a stopgap um, but whether he stays beyond the end of this season really depends on whether he can hit the ground running interesting times in the Premier League now for something a little bit special we're going to be talking about the life times the genius the brilliance of England cricketer Ben Stokes so Stokes was born on the 4th of June 1991 in Christchurch New Zealand his uh, father, Jed Stokes, a New Zealander, was a rugby league player and his mother uh, was uh, English, um, so he's obviously dual nationality. The fact that Stokes moved to the UK is, is pure chance, effectively, because his dad got a job to coach the Workington Town Rugby League Football Club and uh, moved the family to England when Stokes was 12. He lived his first 12 years in New Zealand. Uh, otherwise, uh, Ben Stokes may have played cricket for New Zealand and that would have been a terrible, terrible loss um, to England's national cricket team. Um, Stokes was a talented youngster, as you might have imagined, uh, played for 
Cockermouth Cricket Club, for whom he won the league as a 15-year-old in a men's team, which tells you uh, absolutely everything you need to know about the raw ability of Ben Stokes. Um, what I like most about Stokes, or one of the many things I like about him, is an exciting cricketer. He's also a versatile cricketer, left-handed batsman, right-handed pace bowler, genius fielder, one of the best fielders in the game as well, and also equally adept across all three formats of cricket, test matches, one-day internationals and T20s. He can do them all um, equally as brilliantly. In, in his uh, domestic cricket career, he's played for Durham, um, and been part of their 2013 County Championship winning side, a great Durham team. Uh, was also won the 2014 Royal London One Day competition, which is the national 50-over competition. Um, he's also one of the most sought-after players in the Indian Premier League uh, and was signed by the Rajasthan Royals in 2018 for a then-record £1.7 million, which tells you everything you need to know about the value of Ben Stokes to a cricket team. However, it is for England that Stokes has shown his true worth as a superstar across all three formats. I'm going to count down three of Ben Stokes' best moments for England. Now, these are all batting and I have to say, for me, Stokes is a sensational batsman. He's also a bowler that can make things happen as well. Um, but his best moments have certainly been with the bat. He's just so exciting to watch. Um, I'm going to count them down from three to one. So... In number three, we have his magnificent 258 off 198 balls against South Africa in Cape Town in 2016. He shared a world record sixth wicket partnership of 399 with Bairstow. I mean, scoring at a rate like that, uh, that, those kind of figures in test cricket is just unheard of. It's absolutely sensational innings to watch. Uh, Bairstow was absolutely brilliant as well that day. Um, but yeah, that was absolutely sensational. Second place, and I can't believe this is second, by the way, is Stokes' 84 not out in the World Cup final at Lords when England beat New Zealand. Uh, he came in 86 for four, um, England in big trouble. He shared a 110 partnership with Joss Butler, got in England right back into the match. And who can forget when he hit that massive shot towards the boundary, uh, Trent Bolt standing underneath it, stood on the boundary rope and it was six rather than out. What a massive moment that was. That, also that, that kind of dive um, to try and get in. The ball cannoned off his bat and then went for four overthrows. Unbelievable drama that day. Um, and I wouldn't say single-handedly because there were massive contributions from the likes of Joss Butler and Joffre Archer as well in that victory. Um, but a massive, massive part of England winning the World Cup. Um, and my top Ben Stokes moment has to be the best innings of cricket ever played by anyone. The 135 not out to win the Headingley Test match in 2019. What an innings. So England were set an unlikely 359 to win. They were bowled out for less than 70 in their first innings. 359 to win. I mean... Very few teams have ever, ever got that much, particularly in a test match, to win a game. Um, England sort of batted, battled hard. Um, they they fought well. Uh, we're losing wickets slowly but surely. Um, ben Stokes dug in, scoring like, incredibly slowly for him, um, and uh, but was was staying in, was 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 digging it out until ultimately 
he was left with the last man, Jack Leach, with 76 still required to win. Um, and he decided at that moment, right, he had to turn it on. And boundaries left, right and centre were hit. He knew that he could, that Jack Leach was unlikely to stick around for too long. If England were going to win, he needed to score and score fast. And that's exactly what he did. So many dramatic moments, a drop catch, um, a run out. Nathan Lyon should have run him out. Such an exciting uh, partnership to watch. Jack Leach contributed one, not out, of their 76-run partnership. And England won a famous, famous victory. I can still see the last shot now. Stokes smashed a four um, to the offside and just stood up uh, and took the acclaim of a packed Headingley crowd sensational moment um, and those two unbelievable innings that Headingley and at Lords at the World Cup final won him the BBC Sports Personality of the Year award in 2019 that it couldn't be anyone else it was just an incredible incredible year for Stokes um, now when we're talking about Ben Stokes life we probably do have to touch on some element of controversy he was, of course, charged with a fray um, and went to court in 2018 after a brawl in the street. Um, it later transpired that he was actually defending a gay couple from homophobic abuse, it should be said, um, but um, got into a, a massive fight in the street. Um, he was kind of stood down from the England team for a period of time, um, could have negatively affected his career. He was cleared of all charges in the end and um, came back from all that difficulty in 2018 to perform sensationally in 2019 with those two absolutely brilliant innings amongst many many other wonderful Ben Stokes performances uh, so you know he's faced adversity he's come back and shown the world what he's all about why do I think Ben Stokes is an icon well I could keep going for hours but he can do things that nobody else can his innings against Australia at Headingley no other player in the world could have played that innings. It was just absolutely sensational. Digging in when he needed to dig in, hitting out when he needed to hit out and coaxing England home. Um, I think that Ben Stokes had a, a role to play in changing the way that England play, changing the way that they set up against teams. Um, other players that are coming through now are trying to play the Ben Stokes way and that can only be a good thing. Um, Equally good across all formats. There is nothing he can't do in cricket. I mean, I've not talked much about his bowling. He's a sensational fast bowler. He's the sort of bowler that just makes things happen. He can bowl just shy of 90 miles an hour. He can zip the ball around. He can bowl bouncers. And um, England often call on him when they need a wicket. Um, and I just think he's got the X factor. He's just got that thing that you can't describe that truly great sportsmen have. Ben Stokes. You are this week's sporting icon. Take a bow. Wow, it's been a bumper week of sport this week. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. It's been absolutely epic. Uh, join me again next week where I'll have a whole new roundup and lots more exciting sport in action for you. If you want to get in contact with me, you can email me at akobpodcast at gmail.com. You can also get in touch with me via Twitter at all kinds of balls. 
Also, Facebook at All Kinds of Balls. And if you'd like to leave me a voice message, you can do so via the Anchor or Spotify apps or websites. Uh, thanks again for joining me, and I'll see you again for more All Kinds of Balls next week. Bye.